Welcome back to episode two. I am Sophia Gautier. And I'm Graham Offridge. We are pediatricians and the host of this podcast, Clinicians, Kids, and the Changing Climate. All right, Sophia. So what is our topic today? So I am going to counter with what is the largest cause of environmental mortality in the United States? In kids? In, in, in everybody. Actually, okay, hint. Uh, particularly in young children and athletes such as football players. Um, those are pretty high-risk populations. Okay. So we live in Texas. We are recording this in August, and it is well over 100 degrees outside. Plus, you mentioned football players, and they have a season that uh, basically begins during the summertime. So I'm going to go with extreme heat. Exactly. Extreme heat kills more people than hurricanes, lightning, tornadoes, and floods. Heat waves are becoming longer, more frequent, and more severe over time. So today, we're going to talk about the global warming aspect of climate change. We'll start with body physiology in extreme heat, and then we'll move into the concept of urban heat islands, and then close with some discussion on wildfires. Okay, well, walk me through it. So first, the impacts of extreme heat start actually in the earliest stages of life. There are associations that exist between extreme heat events and increases in preterm birth and stillbirth. There's also an association between heat waves and pediatric emergency room visits, as well as hospitalizations. All right. And remind me, why are children particularly vulnerable? So this is kind of interesting. Physiologically, children have immature thermoregulatory ability. They produce more heat per mass. They have a lower body sweat rate. They divert a greater proportion of their cardiac output to the periphery during high temperatures. And something that is, I think, most people know, young children also lack the developmental skills. So I'm thinking like really young, like babies, toddlers. Um, they lack the developmental skills necessary for protective behavior modification, like drinking more water, shedding excess clothing, or even leaving a locked car when it's too hot. Okay, so children are particularly vulnerable to extreme heat, which is the highest cause of environmental deaths in the U.S. I work in the emergency department. What should I be looking out for? So heat-related illness can be divided into three categories, mild, moderate, which is also known as heat exhaustion, and severe, which is known as heat stroke. So mild heat includes things like heat rash, but sometimes we see people have bigger reactions to the heat, such as passing out in really hot environments. That's usually caused by something called venous pooling. It's important to note that body temperature remains normal in mild heat illness, so around 37 degrees Celsius. This is in contrast to moderate and severe heat illness. So moderate heat illness, also known as heat exhaustion, occurs when the core body temperature rises between 37 and 40 degrees Celsius because the ambient heat begins to overwhelm your own body's core thermoregulatory abilities. Symptoms can include dizziness, headache, fatigue, even vital sign abnormalities like tachycardia and tachypnea. You can see GI upset, even vomiting, diarrhea, and muscle cramping. But there is no central nervous system dysfunction and no end organ damage. Okay. So how do we differentiate this from severe heat illness or heat stroke? So heat stroke is the most severe, and these are the cases that you often will see in the news. Heat stroke can be differentiated from heat exhaustion by two major principles. Number one, in heat stroke, core body temperature will exceed 40 degrees Celsius. And number two, 
Uh, symptoms include end organ damage, which can include CNS dysfunction like delirium or even seizures, as well as cardiac irregularities like arrhythmias. You can see hypotension, even GI bleeding and muscle tetany. And notably, the skin can actually be dry instead of sweaty. I think this is a huge opportunity to educate coaches and teachers in the community about signs of heat illness and how to treat it. Absolutely. And since you have more experience in a pre-hospital setting, what can pediatricians teach coaches and athletes about treating heat exhaustion and heat stroke? Well, in the field, patients should be transferred to shade or cooler environments as soon as possible. As soon as you're seeing those early signs that somebody could be getting more hot than they should be. They can be covered in cold, damp washcloths, particularly in the groin and axilla, or immersed in cold water or an ice bath. Hydration is going to be key, and you can also do some cooling via IV fluids once they get to the healthcare uh, setting. So now we've talked about heat-related illness and the way in which children are uniquely vulnerable. But it's important to note that children in marginalized communities are also disproportionately vulnerable to extreme heat. So you're referring to the concept of urban heat islands? Yeah. Like, okay, imagine a bubble of warm air over a city. An urban heat island is a geographically concentrated area where ambient temperature is significantly hotter than surrounding areas, on average up to seven degrees higher. So how does that happen exactly? There are kind of several contributing factors. So number one, usually cities have a lack of green spaces. Leaves in trees, they provide shade, but they also store water that can evaporate, which causes air cooling. This is also known as transpiration. Number two, this um, is in contrast with building materials like asphalt, brick, and steel. All of these things absorb, store, and subsequently emit more solar radiation than natural surfaces. Number three, All those building materials that I mentioned tend to be dark in color and absorb more heat. There's actually efforts to paint the tops of buildings with white or reflective paint. These have demonstrated to significantly decrease the local ambient temperature. Number four, in heavily developed areas, buildings obstruct natural wind flow, which disrupts natural cooling mechanisms. And number five, cities are full of Things like vehicles, HVAC systems, industrial facilities, all of these produce a lot of heat waste. Hmm, interesting. Is the urban heat island effect uniform across an individual city? So interestingly enough, no. The severity of urban heat islands varies within cities, and there have been multiple studies linking neighborhoods that were historically redlined in the 1930s. They tend to house low-income minority populations with more severe heat islands. So does that mean that the greatest risk of heat occurs within cities? Not necessarily. So this actually brings us to our last topic, which is wildfires. So this has been in the news pretty frequently this year, both with the Canadian wildfires and the devastating fires in Maui. Can you talk about how climate change contributes to the threat of wildfires? So from a climate perspective, longer dry seasons and shorter winter frost leaves vegetation drier for longer. The extent of area burned by wildfires annually has been increasing, with peaks coinciding with the hottest years. For example, the Canadian wildfires this year in 2023 were part of the country's worst wildfire season on record. Substantial greenhouse gas emissions and forest loss from wildfires are likely to accelerate climate change further, possibly lead to kind of a reinforcing feedback loop. Wildfires not only cause death, property damage, and displacement— 
They lead to mental health challenges, which we will address later in the podcast, but they also lead to the degradation of ambient air quality, which is what we're going to focus on in the next episode. Okay, so before we close out, let's talk about some key takeaways from this episode and opportunities for action. Okay, so first, extreme heat is the largest cause of environmental mortality in the United States, and it's increasing in frequency. Second, there are three stages of heat-related illnesses. Mild, moderate, aka heat exhaustion, where core body temperatures rise between 37 and 40 degrees, and severe, aka heat stroke, where the core body temperature exceeds 40 degrees and you see signs of CNS dysfunction and end organ damage. Treat with rapid body cooling and hydration, and be active in educating the community. Third, urban heat islands are a measurable example of the disparities that exist between the impacts of climate change on different socioeconomic classes. This is a great opportunity to advocate for things like medical legal partnerships in our clinical spaces, where we can help communities get affordable access to things like utility assistance or advocate for programs that aim to greenify vulnerable neighborhoods. All right. So that wraps up episode two. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next great episode, which will be on air quality and respiratory health. This podcast was researched and written by myself, Dr. Sophia Gautier. A massive thank you to my friend and co-host, Dr. Graham Offrich. The podcast was produced by the fantastic audio engineers at the University of Texas at Austin Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services team with funding via a pediatric medical education grant and instructional support from the Medical Education Fellowship at the University of Texas Dell Medical School.